Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. And welcome to Sawbones, a metal tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin Tyler McElroy. And I'm Sydney Smurl McElroy. That's good. It's not as much authority as I put behind it, but you'll get used to it. I never know when you're going to throw that middle name Curveball in there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not... My middle re- name I'm actually not- is Curveball. My name's Justin Curveball McElroy. Curveball is my middle name. That'd be a great name for our next child. <laughs> if we have another child. Curveball. Curveball McElroy. You, were, you heard it here first. <laughs> Curveball will be the name. No, that's not, no. Sorry that we're late, by the way. Uh, it can get a little much uh, sometimes. I was traveling like all week. We were in an, yeah. an a, we were, a heroin Yeah, we went to a medical conference. I, no, not a heroin show. A, a heroin. Prescription drug abuse and heroin summit. That, that's right. right. I didn't go to it. No, I went I to did. the zoo. I did. <laughs> in the aquarium. I went to the zoo with... We went to the zoo with Stuff You Should Know's own Chuck. Uh, Chuck and it was uh, delightful. Yeah. We had and a wonderful time. A wonderful time there in Atlanta. Um, but uh, it, but it, then Justin was gone with work yeah. and we have a baby. And it can be tough finding time. Just, we to, just get really busy and we're yeah. sorry we're late. There's nothing compared to how it would have been if we had tried to do a show while you were still a resident. Yes. Now, back in those days, there were no, there were no extra hours. There were no evenings or weekends or lunch breaks or dinner breaks or breakfast breaks or showers or sleep or sometimes sleep or eating. What did I do? Just, did I pee? Did been, I pee at all? There was some, in those three years. There was some peeing. Um, I remember you. Um, I remember coming home and you making me soup. I did that a lot. Yeah. Before I passed out in bed eating soup. I remember a couple of times you looked for, uh, we spent some time looking for other things you could do with a medical degree besides being a doctor. <laughs> I think there was a brief flirtation with uh, becoming a doctor lawyer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just, yeah. Anything to, to get me out of the hospital. Now, I understand you want to tell the folks in the Sawbones listener family, uh, talk a little bit more about why uh, that's like that. Right. So we've I've, I've actually we've had a lot of like tweets and Facebook posts and things to mentioning that we should talk about residency work hours and, and duty hours. And uh, Thomas sent us an email about it. So he gets thanked for this. Thank topic, you, Thomas. He sent the email. And I'm thank you to everybody else who suggested it, too. It's just it's harder to search emails. Search. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting because I think that we are all familiar with the idea that people in training to be a doctor work really long hours. Mm -hmm. But then the question is always why, why and isn't that dangerous? And Mm -hmm. 
then you see reports in the media about changes in work hours that are always kind of overly dramatic. If you know the whole history and you live in that world, the reports can sound kind of silly sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but but how did we end up here? I don't know. I mean, it's I, a lot. It's it's staggering. I mean, it seems unreal. Do you are you? I'm assuming you're going to talk about what it's like to, these days later. Yes. But do you want to give a generally so people talk? No, it's not just about. You know, it's not a few hours more than a regular human being works. No, we're 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 going to get to it. But in general, think about uh, an 80 hour work week as being fairly standard. Wow. OK, so how did we how did we get here? Sid? How did we get here? And let me be clear, too. I'm this uh, evolution is slightly different depending on where you live in the world. So this is mainly the U.S. medical system. This sure. is This is how we do training here. I know the rules I know that's been a hotly debated topic in the UK, for instance. I know junior doctors have been protesting for their work hours and rights and pay and, and all kinds of issues. I'm not covering that history because I'm more familiar with the U.S. system. So sure. just to be clear, uh, training physicians has always been a very intense process. Historically, when you were a resident, meaning you're done with medical school, but you're not yet out there on your own. So you're in that intern intern residency period and an apprenticeship is... an apprenticeship of sorts yes and think about it this way um uh, when you hear those words because a lot of people say what's the difference an intern or resident what what do you mean residency is somewhere between typically three and five years hmm. depending on what specialty you're in and whatever residency you're in the first year of it is called your intern year okay so that's all it is an intern is a first year resident Got After it. that, you're a resident. That's it. Um, and historically, your training was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You were called a resident because you were a resident of the hospital. Like you live there, basically. Like, like you live like there. Like the hunchback of Notre Dame. You just sort of... <laughs> you just live there. Just live there in the bowels of the facility. And the idea was that it was supposed to be this extremely intense, immersive period of your life. Very brief. Where you devoted your mind, body, and soul to learning medicine, and then you would come out the other end and be a physician and go out there and do whatever you want to do on your own. Uh, in general, interns, so first-year residents, were on call every other night. So every other night, you stayed up all night long and took care of all the patients. Mm -hmm. And residents were on call every third. So after your first year, you graduated to getting to only be up all night every third night oh, instead of gosh. every other night. Uh, you made very little money, like one doctor referenced making $25 a month Wow! when he was in residency. Uh, and you did what we call the scut work in the hospital. Now, what we call scut work now, and that term is pretty universal in sure. medicine. What, what we I call, think it's universal universally. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, what we call scut work in the medical world now is different from what scut work was back then. So now when I, when my residents complain about scut work, we're talking about like all the paperwork we have to do. like faxing and signing stuff and sitting at a computer and endlessly doing notes and, you know, and then uh, people from uh, documentation come and tell you, you need to clarify this further. And that, that's the kind of stuff people think of as scut work. Uh, what scut work was back in the day was everything that happens to a patient in the hospital. So imagine, and in modern hospitals, this can seem odd for most people. Mm -hmm. The doctor who actually sees you and admits you to the hospital would also be the one who took your blood, who started your IV, who took you to the x-ray suite and performed your x-rays themselves, who administered your medications, 
who then went and took your blood that they've already drawn from you to the lab and ran lab analyses and ran urinalyses and uh, transported you from room to room. When you get moved from one room to the other, your doctor is the one actually wheeling you from room to room. Even like your EKG, your doctor might be the one running your EKG and also maybe he even made those electrodes out of coins because I did read that report as well. Wow. Making uh, quarters were made of silver back in the day, making electrodes out of quarters and running your own EKG. So scut work used to encompass all the stuff that we now think of. There are a lot of other health professionals who work in the hospital that do that. Doctors did all that too. So you can imagine that during your call shift, it was more than just making medical decisions. You were nonstop busy. Now I uh, wanted to make it in here. I did a quick Google search to back up my claim about scut work being a universal term. Mm-hmm. And scut work actually does date back to being medical jargon from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Scut was a, uh, sort of a derogatory way of referring to a junior intern. Oh, okay. I called him a scut. Now, uh, that probably goes back to an uh, informal Irish slang uh, that meant a person perceived as foolish, contemptible, or objectionable. Uh, and that's what a scut was. That was adopted as, uh, as medical jargon and then that. scut work in like the 60s. I didn't know the history of that. And we still talk about scut work up to this day. Yeah. Scut is actually the, you, also the Justin. short tail of a deer or rabbit. So that could also be that. So now we know that. too. So there you go. Thank you for that. that thank you for this week's segment of Justin Googled it. <laughs> Justin Googled it. Uh, prior to the 1900s, American med school graduates would often go abroad for clinical training. So you would finish your med school and you might go to Europe to rotate through hospitals there. Uh, because there was that wasn't a really codified part of the American medical training yet. Mm. Um, they brought back this idea, though, and so we started creating internships in the U.S. in the early 1900s. Now, originally, this was just a year. So you finished medical school, where you actually formally like sat in classrooms and learned about stuff. Mm-hmm. You finished that, and you would spend a year either rotating through various hospitals and specialties that would be called a rotating internship or you do what they would call a straight internship meaning i already kind of know what i want to do with my life so i'm going to devote my entire intern year to that thing right you would do this intern year and live exactly like i just described you they were that was where we get these terms residents come from or house staff or house officer i get that like i I still hear that floated around today although we usually don't call them that anymore but you might be the house officer and you, because you live there you were the officer of the house you live there and you train for a year mm-hmm. and uh, and also you should know a lot of the doctors at the time in the u.s were young unmarried men mm-hmm. so they had they were supposed to have nothing else to do yeah it kind of seems to almost be self-selecting like you have to be a, of a certain uh also economic like nobody financially dependent on you right uh, obviously and uh, yeah, it, that would make sense that those two would go hand in hand. Yeah, it was it was recommended. I think Osler actually recommended to doctors like just don't bother getting married. You're this is this is your life. This is your love. This is your passion. Don't bother with marriage. Or if you do, it better be somebody pretty understanding. <laughs> and luckily for you, it was. <laughs> well, it's not a that cool bad now. customer. Not that bad now. Just oh, heart as big as all outdoors. Say. Well, that's that's fair. After 1930, the internship year began to grow into what we think of as the residency. And a lot of this happened as things became more specialized. And as we see that and we see specialty boards arising, we see the need for longer training 
and more intense specialty specific training. Mm. You know, if you're if we're going to do all these surgeries now, we actually need you to spend several years doing the surgeries, not just one year sort of doing them and then go off on your own and do them. And then what also changed is that the hospitals that these interns and residents would work in would kind of become associated with that. So like this is a hospital that accepts residents. And so they are focused on education and training and research. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the patients who went there would be subjects in their research, Mm -hmm. but they also would provide care. They considered themselves like charitable organizations. We provide care for people who maybe couldn't get it otherwise. So they were serving people while expanding our medical knowledge base was kind of the idea. It makes sense. Now, after World War II, as medicine becomes even more specialized and technology advances, and again, we we need res- we need doctors to do these longer residencies. Um, we start seeing an expanded number of hospitals offer residencies and take residents because mm. it wasn't you know there there was this moment in history where you didn't have to do a residency to be a doctor. Mm. You could just finish medical school and you know go hang up your shingle and start seeing patients. You do that still, right? No. You still be a GP? Uh, you still, yes, but you still have to do an intern year, and that's oh, okay. that's kind of falling by the wayside. Oh. Uh, but but there was a moment where you could like even just go apprentice with somebody unofficially, just to, for your own learning, and then and then go be a doctor. Right. Well, at this point, we kind of see everybody saying like, "No, we probably need everybody to do a residency." You know, this is important. We're going to go ahead and recommend that you have to have a residency to be a doctor, at least a year of internship. And if not a formal residency. And what also helps with this are the Medicaid and Medicare acts in 1965. So what this did is Medicare started giving money to hospitals to train residents. Mm. Now hospitals are incentivized to take residents. Right. And this is when you see it really explode. It's the fact that they're getting a lot of cheap labor. Well, that's the other thing. Patient care starts to become more and more reliant on having a bunch of cheap, residents staying up all night doing all the work in your hospital you know it occurs to me that it's almost there's almost a parallel you could draw between um like language immersion how you can take classes and classes and classes but really until you have the the way you finally become fluent really is you have to live in the place where the language is being used constantly it seems like that that uh, that so it's kind of necessary to like live in medicine as much mm-hmm. studying as you do. It doesn't really click for you until you get that. Yeah. Is that how it, how it felt for you? I think that's very true because, you know, you can't predict when you actually go out there and start practicing, you can't predict what like disease states or conditions you're going to care for first or mm. the most often, or, you know, when the first kind of unusual case is going to come through your door and so the more exposure you have to everything in training, the better prepared you're going to be on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I could read about a rare disease a thousand times, but until I actually have that encounter and, and manage somebody with it, I'm not going to be as good. I'm not going to be as as skilled. Was there so, any kind of consistency between these? Anybody sort of like making sure that they all were consistent among the programs? Uh, not initially. Um, the AMA in 1910 kind of unofficially started listing like who was a residency and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until the 1950s where we see these um, committees for the various residency programs start to emerge for different specialties. 
that actually started to regulate, mm. you know, these programs. And then in the 1970s, we see the Liaison Committee for Graduate Medical Education is formed, which transforms into the ACGME, which is the governing body over residency and fellowship right. training. Fellowship is beyond residency. I didn't really talk about that, but everybody has to do a residency. After you're done with your residency, if you want to specialize further, you may do a fellowship, depending on what you're doing. I okay. didn't, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but that's in the 80s. And then this ACGME is still what governs all the residency programs today and make all the rules for us. Okay. And accredit programs and come and you know, survey and, and analyze programs periodically to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Do you know how stringent those rules go? Like, uh, are there things like requirements on beds or things like that like things that need to be on hand for people doing this like how oh they're incredibly stringent yeah. everything yeah no that so you mean like for the residents to sleep in but yeah, yeah. Right. oh yeah sleeping spaces and appropriate like there has to be food available to the residents 24 hours and uh, there's all kinds of yeah. of rules to make sure that we're being that residents are being supervised they're being cared for they're being you know, their concerns are being met you know i mean Yes, they're very strict, very, very strict. Mm. Uh, in the 1970s, people started to wonder about the effects of working really long hours on patient safety, as well as the idea that these residents who are working really long hours, what's the effect on their yeah. health and their mental Might health as well. and well-being? Yeah, yeah. Um, and They've got those, those uh, knives, you know, scalpels, I guess you call them. yeah. yeah. Might as well check in on them, see if they're all right. <laughs> so some studies started to suggest that maybe we need to have a balance between your working pursuits, your educational pursuits, and your personal pursuits. Can maybe you, that was important. Yeah, can you even fathom it? Um, and so in the early 1980s, the ACGME took the step of attempting to institutionalize this by adding specific statements in the program requirements for graduate medical education in pediatrics and internal medicine. So in those two specialties, in their program requirements, um, they they said, listen, there needs to be a balance. But that was kind of it. <laughs> there should be a balance. You we, figure out yeah. what it is, but you should have We're not a balance. Find balance, but um, but there was no there was no definition of that. So throughout the 80s, we see this move where medical schools are more focused on research and less on teaching. So supervision in the hospital is suffering mm -hmm. because they don't want faculty in the hospital supervising residents. They want them in the lab making research money for the right. hospital. And the hospitals are just focused on profits. And so they're like, admit the patient, discharge the patient, get them in and out faster, faster, get the beds. I mean, that's how they make the most money. And resident training really suffered because they're not being supervised closely enough. And they're being put under these incredible demands by the hospital to be more efficient, work harder and faster with no mm -hmm. sleep. Okay. Now, we already know that sleep deprivation is bad, right? We have yes. lots of studies yes, that show that. that night shift workers and people who are chronically depri deprived of adequate sleep because of their jobs or whatever are subject to increased adverse health events and uh, negative impacts on their quality of life. Things like divorce rates are higher among people who don't have normal sleep hours and that kind of thing. Um, we also know that like your working memory is bad when you're sleep deprived. So right. it makes sense when you put all that together. And you're in this atmosphere where we see hospitals moving patients in and out quickly and they're all staffed by all these really exhausted residents. And and we're starting to get all these studies on like, but sleep deprivation is so terrible. And what are we doing with these residents? And there's no real rules. And what is this going to do to patient safety? And it was in this atmosphere that a landmark case, unfortunately, happened that kind of brought it to national attention. What happened? In 1984, the Libby Zion case is really what made this whole thing explode. 
This was an 18-year-old woman who was admitted to a New York teaching hospital, and she was on a medication and then was given another medication, and it resulted in a drug interaction, uh, serotonin syndrome, and the patient ended up dying. And at, and there was, a, there was a big court case that followed. It was very publicized. And the end result is that they f- the main factor they felt that contributed to the, the poor decision-making was resident fatigue. Mm-hmm. She was managed by two residents who were on like a 36-hour shift and caring for 40 patients at a time. Um, they were not adequately supervised. I would, actually, I would actually add that to the case. But either way, the big issue... That, that came out of the whole thing was how can you have somebody who hasn't slept in 36 hours taking care of a human being and make good decisions? I still don't have an answer to this question, Sydney. And I, I, I will regale with an anecdote to illustrate from your personal uh, history uh, about that. But are you going to answer the question first? I wasn't going to answer it quite yet. What we got to do? We got to go to the billing department. Let's go. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business 
or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. One time when uh, Sydney had finished with a, a, a shift, um, uh, her sister, my sister-in-law, Riley, was in a theater camp that was performing a show uh, that they had written. Uh, in and she was like eight. Oh, she was very little. And, and so a bunch of eight-year-olds wrote the show. You need bunch, to know that. Yeah, a bunch of eight-year-olds wrote the show, okay? This so is adorable, theater written by eight-year-olds. But also hard, maybe a little hard to follow. Little bit, and also I was sleep deprived. And also, <laughs> I look over at the end of the show, and I'm kind of like, "That was very cute." I don't understand any of what happened. Sydney sobbing, <laughs> sobbing at how beautiful the theater that she just witnessed was because she had come directly from the hospital after one of these. It's probably a thirty hour shift. Well, I think I was on surgery at the time, so maybe longer. Sydney, how did this start to? to change and how much has it changed and why hasn't it changed more and <laughs> so, all so that. I'll get to that. So, in, so the ACGME task force on resident hours and super supervision was created. And in February of 1988, they came out with some guidelines. So here were the original guidelines. First, you have to have one day off in seven on average, mm-hmm. on average over a month, one in seven days. Okay. Uh, second, you can't be on call more than every third night, no more every other night. Now it's every third night. Uh, third, you have to have adequate backup available just in case, let's say, because a resident has a particularly arduous shift and they just can't make it to the end. You got to have somebody who can step in and take over if that resident basically tags out and says, right. I, I, I can't I give. I got to go. I'm I don't know what's happening. And fourth, there has to be appropriate supervision of all residents with like an open line of communication between the resident and their supervising attending at all times. Right. We um, still get calls, even though Sydney's not a resident anymore when she's an attending who's uh covering the the service at that point you still get calls at all hours exactly um, with no, i'm not complaining i know it's important no it i'm important. complaining a little bit because it's i mean i didn't sign up for this life <laughs> it's not fair you did when you married me yeah fair enough okay agreed it was left up to the individual specialty specialties to regulate hours any further than that those were the original only rules and this is the 80s like this is like 88 and they've just now made any rules at all up right. until then, there were zero rules on how much you could work. So they, they said basically like, and then we'll leave it up to all you different medical specialties to decide what's best for yours. Well, in 89, internal medicine specialty created the concept of the 80-hour work week. And basically within a year, all the other specialties said, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't we all adopt it too? So of their own free will, everybody decided that 80 hours was enough, averaged over four weeks. 80 hours was enough for people to work. Okay. That, I always throw in that average over four weeks because it gives you some wiggle room. Because you could work, just kick out a little bit early the next week. Exactly. So, <sighs> so it gives you wiggle room. It's the same with the one day and off and seven. And I 80, mean, hour, I, 80 hours is like, in context of what we're talking about here, 80 hours were seen as a mercy, right? Like 80 hours oh, yeah. is like, well, I guess if we have to limit it to 80 hours, we will. No, that oh, it very, very much was. And like the, the physicians that some of the older physicians that I trained under would say things like that, roll their eyes about, 
80 hours like you guys think that's so long like that was nothing back in the day i remember right. one one physician looking at me and saying you know how the residents were debating who was on call the next night and they couldn't remember the schedule and and he said uh you know how i remembered what night i was on call because if i wasn't on call last night i was on call tonight Ugh. Ugh. Uh, throughout the 90s there were several highly publicized cases of medical errors you really see like this focus in the u.s where the media really like hones in on the idea that I think maybe people are making mistakes in hospitals. This is the first time that this is, I mean, we know that this happens now. Mm -hmm. This isn't news now, but this was. And there were several really highly publicized cases of things like wrong site surgery, meaning like cutting off the wrong limb kind of errors, major errors. There was a prominent reporter who was given an overdose of a chemo drug. There were all kinds of medication errors. And this brought the argument over physician duty hours back to the forefront again and said like 80 hours a week, you limited it to that and you think that's enough. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that in 1999, the Institute of Medicine issued this report called to air is human building a safer health system. And in it, they said, you know what? There are probably somewhere between 48,000 and 98,000 deaths from medical errors in the U S each year. And without really a, a great cause as to why just that this is happening and you put this on top of people already being aware of all these long hours residents work and they're in mm-hmm. training. And so you get this public demand. You somebody's got to do something. Listen, we don't understand this system, but we know it's bad. <laughs> but we know it's bad and we want somebody to fix it. And actually, Congress even threatened, listen, ACGME, either regulate yourself or we're going to come do it for you. Mm. Uh, so at this point, a work group is formed. And by 2003, it takes them a while. Research takes a while. By 2003, a set of common standards refining hours officially across all specialties was put in place. And this really didn't change a whole lot of what I've already mentioned. It just made it like all of these different specialties is kind of voluntarily said they would do this. Well, the ACGME is now putting this in like any, any kind of last holdouts can't anymore. They're right. They just codified and got in the, uh, the outliers, but this wasn't really enough because it was a focus of legislative attention and money and People were starting to put in more um, research dollars into effect. Like, is there an effect on patient care? Can we prove that fatigue actually, you know, does impact patient safety? Because we still haven't proven this okay. at this point. We have no study that says it yet. That's the problem. Right. We have no study that, that proves that. So, again, the Institute of Medicine put together an expert group and said, we need to come up with some stricter standards. And they did a ton of homework. They had an international symposium and they got like 140 medical organizations involved. They got legal reviews, educational literature reviews. They did all kinds of interviews with doctors, patients, families of patients who they felt had been injured due to these errors from fatigued residents, sleep specialists, safety advisors, quality improvement specialists. They stuck with the 80-hour work week. At the end of it all, in the okay. end, in the end, all the things that they came out with, they stuck with the eight hour work week, still averaged over four weeks. Uh, they added, though, that when you're in your intern year, when you're in your first year of residency. You can only do 16 hours of continuous duty. Now, this is after you, right? This is after this is me. Post you. This yeah. is not in 2003. This was. No, this, this was to take them a grip. Yeah. 2005. No, because no. you were in. You. uh 2008. We, we got married this in 2008. This was 2008. Okay. 2008. 2008 is when this happened. So in 2008, they said PGY1s, postgraduate year one, meaning first year residents, can only do 16 hours of continuous duty. This was a big shift. We were allowed to do 24 hours of continuous duty. 
with four extra hours as needed for like finishing things up. Mm -hmm. So like I could spend 28 hours. Hey, hey, y'all, we know what that means. Okay. <laughs> you can spend, uh, you can't say like the limit, listen, hard limit, 24. But if you are in the middle of some things, you can go to 28. Like, and, and it was really, 28. it was honestly that. 30. Like that was, that was what but we yeah, all expected. Right. We expected that for me, pretty much through my residency, every fourth night, I spent a 30 hour shift in the hospital. And that was when I was on hospital service. You know, when I did outpatient stuff, it wasn't like that, but that, that was expected. That was pretty standard. So anyway, they said as an intern, you can only do 16 hours a shift. Everybody else can still do 24 with the four extra bonus hours as needed. And, but you have to have 10 hours off between shifts. Mm. That was, that was new. And also they, they, there's a lot about strategic napping. Strategic napping, like polyphasic sleep, basically. No, just like if you're going to do these overnight shifts, you need to take strategic naps. Yeah, I don't think they're having to ask anybody to take strategic naps, right? Like, I think if you can get a nap in there, you're going to get one, it's right? A, it's part of fatigue mitigation training. We all have to go through fatigue mitigation training when uh, we're in okay. residency, and part of it is strategic napping. I just really always like that term, strategic napping. Yeah. They didn't change the Q3, meaning every third night call. They didn't change the one in seven days off. They did increase supervision of interns. Mm. It, it really, to tell, like, this impacted our our program so much that we had to completely rework how we do our hospital service. We had to completely like start from the ground up and mm -hmm. reorganize how we do it in order to keep for an intern to keep a senior resident in house with them 24 hours a day, um, completely restructured our hospital service. Wow. Yeah. And we're at, we're a busy service. And so it, they, they, these were major changes for programs. This doesn't sound like a major change, but it really is. Cause it's all math, right? It's all, it's all X number of people covers how many hours and how long like can they be supervised by this person yeah. and you know and, and that 16 hour shift the problem with that because you have to understand that 16 hour shift for interns it sounds like nothing this was a huge deal if you're a residency program director because the concern is if you are in the hospital for 16 hours you will see the beginning of a patient's progress and then you will leave and hand them off to someone else and go sleep or whatever. And you won't see the initial, like all the stuff that goes into managing that acute phase of illness. Mm. And so there's real concern that this will impact education. And then the other thing is, it sounds like this should be better naturally for patient safety, but the other real concern is what happens in that transition from doctor to doctor. That's a key moment in patient care. And that transition continuity, is really dangerous. Right? Yeah, continuity of care is best. And that transition is really dangerous. But everybody's really tired. And so they thought this will fix the tired and surely everything will get better. So 2008, these are put in place. It made my senior year of residency just, just a mess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. It wasn't that bad. It did, it did require that I did a whole lot more work my third year of residency than I was anticipating. But the results... After making these changes, and about five years later, they started looking at everything. The results were not very impressive. Oh, no. Studies of patient morbidity and mortality after the duty hours change really didn't show much change. Hmm. Overall, there were, there were isolated studies that thought they indicated some improvements here and there. But when you look at them all over, uh, you know, all the overall impact, there just wasn't a big major change. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons. First of all, it's self-report. So we're basing how many hours a resident works on how many hours they're reporting that they worked. Right. Now, here's the problem with that. If 
if I'm a resident and I start reporting that I am routinely working past the duty hours, I am working beyond what I am, you know, supposed to work, that the ACGME dictates I cannot work more than this and I'm doing it anyway. Those hours get reported and the ACGME monitors it. And if that's happening over and over again in a residency program, that residency program will not get accredited again. They'll get shut down eventually. You cannot abuse residents that way and continue to operate. Well, but if I'm a resident and my program gets shut down, I'm kind of up the creek without a paddle, right? Then you got to try to find another program to get into. And that can be very difficult, and especially depending on what specialty you're in. So there's a lot of pressure on the residents to maybe not report how many hours they're really working. So one question we've asked is, are people really... Did this change much? You know, right. I mean, did this actually change much? Because we we don't know these are what are the actual versus the reported hours. Another thing is that there is no protection if you are a whistleblower. Like, I, it doesn't help you again. You if your residency gets shut down, right. that hurts you. Um, and then also there are a lot of confounding variables because in the same period of time we see like electronic medical records growing as a new thing, and so like there's a lot of other things that we're improving and changing in hospitals. So it's hard to say. So conclusively up to this point, we still have not seen any evidence that resident fatigue actually does lead to increased patient morbidity and mortality. So counterintuitive, but I guess a certain, in a sense, like if you, you can only get so wet, right? Like we like to say, like, if you're pretty tired after a 16 hour shift, Mm -hmm. You're going to be pretty tired after a 24. I mean, it's like, I don't know that you're so much more tired or so much less tired. Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, that you, you'd think, and that's a, that's the tricky thing about science. Sometimes stuff that you seem, you think like, well, obviously the answer to this, my hypothesis is that if you stay up 24 hours and take care of people, that you're going to make a lot of stupid decisions and you're going to hurt people. Mm-hmm. That seems like a really natural assumption. But until you prove it, you know, that's the thing about science. You got to prove it. You can't just guess it. We can't just imagine that that sounds like that's probably it. We don't make stuff up. We we test and prove. We haven't tested this and proven it. Now, I think it is very fair to say reduced work hours would probably lead to a lot better quality of life for the residents. So I think that it would, I think most residents would say that, well, heck yeah, if I could have another day off, a little more time at home with my family, a little more sleep, time to pee. Uh, yeah, of course, my quality of life would be better. But then what are we you got to balance the whole thing. What are you going to sacrifice for that? Patient safety? Or are you going to sacrifice their maturation as residents? You know, their their ability to achieve the level of training they need to, Why? the knowledge they need to before they leave. I just, I think the continuity of care thing is a valid, I think that's a valid argument. And of course, I'm coming to this as a layman, but not layman. That makes me sound like a superhero whose power is not understanding the thing he's talking about. <laughs> I'm coming as, as a layman. I understand that. I do not, I, I cannot see how an extra day off Extra day off would not affect continuity of care. There really has been concern um, from faculty at residency training programs that this shift in in work hours impacted how quickly they watched their residents as interns grow and learn and become. Just like you said, you've got to immerse yourself in this world to really perform in it. The concern is that this does not provide that immersive experience for interns. So they don't really get that till their second year and it puts them a year behind. Mm. And what they're starting to see is that the interns become sort of removed from the medical team. The interns um, begin to develop a shift work mentality. 
which you cannot have in medicine. The, you can't think of it as your shift. And then when you your shift is over, you clock out and take off. You have to think of it, and I do, and this is important. These are my patients. They're my patients. And even when I'm asleep, I'm responsible for them. Mm-hmm. And and there was a lot of concern that um, that there was actually like a big push. Well, we should apply the 16-hour rule to all residents, not just interns, but all you know, all years of residency should only work mm. a 16 hour shift. And they found that their feeling was that this was incompat- incompatible with the actual practice of medicine and surgery mm. to work a 16 hour shift and that it was disruptive to professional altruism, meaning that if this is all you do, you're never going to be able to develop that natural inclination to put a patient's needs before your own, which is core to our profession that sometimes mm. we sacrifice what we want to need for somebody else often in our professional life. I think it's, I think it sucks that the first year is not the worst because I think that that was an important psychic thing for you to come to grips with your first year. Like, well, this is as hard as it possibly gets. So after this, it will be easier. I think it's a bad mental thing Mm -hmm. to say like, actually the second year is hard is longer and harder, but then, yeah, you know, I think that's it's, a hard mental hurdle. It's tricky. I don't know. A lot of the the um, residents I work with now say they would rather do the 24-hour shift than the 16-hour shift. Really? Um, and a lot of programs had to go to a night float system in order to accommodate the 16-hour shifts, meaning that you just come in in the evening, work overnight, go home in the morning, and do that for a month. Um, and that universally is dis well, I shouldn't say universally, it's just like overall people do not prefer it, and we see more negative impact on like quality of life and sleep in a night shift because it, it runs contrary to your circadian rhythms all the time. So it sounds like no easy answers. There isn't one. an easy answer. And and there's one more change starting July 1st. The old is new again. We, uh, the duty hour section on the ACGME, which by the way has become common program requirements, the learning and working environment. We don't talk about duty hours anymore. Uh, the 16 hour shift has been removed. We're going back to 24 for everybody. Oh, wow. So just as soon as we changed it, we changed it right back. Um, for all these reasons that I talked about, basically hospitals and programs and directors and residents themselves kind of went wild over this and said, we don't want it. Now, of course there was a pushback and there were some like, there are no unions or the, no, there are a few unions among residents. Uh, generally we're not, not, not forbidden from unionizing, but we don't fall under any OSHA protections. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we're governed by the ACGME privately, basically. You don't get, well, you don't have to be in a union to have OSHA protection. No, but we also don't get OSHA protections. I mean, <laughs> also, yeah. sign it, also. <laughs> we, yeah, and, so, and, we, and it's hard for us to unionize. There are some resident unions, not very many, and they've pushed back against this change. They feel like that, the, that for resident quality of life, it's more important. We need to go to the 16-hour shifts and to move in that direction. Um, but it's very complex, and there are a lot of people with a lot of different interests involved. I mean, at the end of the day, patient care has to come first. Of course, we also have to be concerned about resident quality of life, and obviously we need to train our residents. They have to leave residency able to do the things they're going to do. So mm-hmm. like, think about it. If you're a surgeon, how many, how many gallbladders do you have to remove before you can go remove a gallbladder by yourself? Seven. <laughs> oh, sorry. You didn't know? <laughs> Where did you come up with that? That's <laughs> yeah, just the number I picked when you started the sentence. I just leaned into it. <laughs> but the, the thing is, if your work hours are shorter, you're going to remove less gallbladders. And at some point, you're not going to have removed enough to go out there in the world and remove them on your own. And that's the concern. 
is that we're going to have to extend residency even longer than it already is. Or get worse gallbladders if everybody can just <laughs> mess their gallbladders up worse. So we can get more in that yeah. 16 hours. No, it's very hard. And uh, having lived it, I don't want to get the mentality, which you will see, and probably not just in medicine, but definitely in medicine of, well, I did it, so you can too. Right. That's a terrible attitude to have. Um, and there's a lot that makes residents feel like they don't have any control over their life. I mean, even the match process, which we didn't even talk about. Right. You don't get to choose where you go for residency. I mean, you do sort of. You put it on a list and you submit it to an algorithm, which then matches you with residency programs that made lists of who they wanted. And then at the end of the day, you get a letter that tells you where you're going, Yeah, which makes you feel completely out of control of your life. And then you go somewhere where you're working these crazy long hours and you're asking to do you're being asked to do these very intense, you know, scary things that matter immensely to, you know, everybody and it's it's a very scary time in your life but it also has it has to be intense to some degree it mm -hmm. has to be sure. i think supervision is the key i think support is the key i think that constantly i think residents do need to tell the truth if they're being abused by the programs if they're working over the work hour limits they need to be able to tell the truth and feel safe doing that and feel that the acgme will come help and not necessarily shut down which is their job and i'm not saying mm -hmm. they won't it's just that's the fear um, it's a balancing act. Um, Sydney, thank you for this illuminating look into, uh, and, and honestly, uh, some flashbacks on my part of uh, <laughs> a, a very difficult period in our lives. But I just tell the residents all the time it's only temporary. It's only temporary. And you can do it. And, Hang in there. And it's Pain not hurt. Once you kind of accept that, that it's temporary and that what you're doing is going to make you a good physician and that what you're doing is to take care of people. Um, I don't know. It's not so bad. I enjoyed it overall. I enjoyed my residency. Um, I want to make a quick note of something. Um, uh, 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 we are going to be appearing this week at April 27th at the Columbus podcast festival. Sawbones, still buffering and quarter pointed. The order is actually still buffering quarter pointed sawbones. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe they're at eight, nine, and, eight, ten, nine and ten at the Columbus Podcast Festival. If you uh, and tickets are are very affordable, I think they're it's two nights. I think it's ten dollars for one night, twenty dollars for both. Um, but it, it's it is very affordable, and it's going to be a great night of of podcasting. Great, great two nights. Um, so if you want details, search Columbus Podcast Festival. And uh, come out and see us. It'll be yeah, fun. Please do. It'll be fun. Look forward to it. Um, I want to say thank you to Maximum Fun Network for having us as a part of their extended podcasting family. Uh, there's tons of great shows on the network. You should go and find yours. This week I'm going to recommend Beef and Dairy Network, which is a podcast about beef, and dairy, and news in that industry. Um, and it is fascinating uh, and hilarious. But you got to listen. Check it out. Just go listen. Um, thanks to taxpayers for letting us use their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thank you to everyone for listening. We appreciate you. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And that's going to do it for us, folks. So until next week, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture.
Artist owned. Listener supported.